You know, it's about a month ago, actually, in preparation for this message, I was praying and studying what the Lord would have me share on July the 2nd, because I am going to get back in Genesis and our apologetic study just for a few more weeks before we transition back to finish Hebrews, and I'll pick that back up. We're going to have communion together next week. It's going to be a beautiful time with all of the church family gathered together to enjoy that. If you're one who tunes in each week, try to get you some elements, uh, you know, crackers or bread, juice of some sort, or, you know, Oreos and Coca-Cola, whatever works for you. But try to get some elements in all seriousness and, and partake of communion with us if you are watching. We do have a number of people, particularly homebound, that uh, this is their church, and not just in East Tennessee, but in numerous places. And so we would love for you to participate, but I'm telling you now in preparation for that. But I begin to realize as I'm studying and prepping for this week how many parallels there are between our independence from British rule as citizens of the United States of America and the freedom we enjoy in Christ from sin and Satan. I want to read something for you. During the American Revolution, the legal separation of the 13 colonies from Great Britain occurred exactly 247 years ago today. Now, I know you think, Pastor, you're, you're two days early, but in fact... It was July the 2nd, 1776, when the Second Continental Congress voted to approve a resolution of independence from Great Britain. After voting for independence, Congress turned its attention to the Declaration of Independence, a statement explaining their decision, which had been prepared by a committee of five with Thomas Jefferson as principal author. Congress debated and revised the wording of the Declaration, finally approving its final form on July 4th. But a day earlier, John Adams, who would become, of course, our second president, wrote to his wife, Abigail, and this is what he said, quote, the second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. Now, we know, of course, that his prediction was off by just two days, but the truth of what Adams saying still applies. It was on this day, 247 years ago that those forefathers had the insight to declare independence, separation from the motherland, to say we are our own people now. He said, Adams continuing, said, I am apt to believe that this day will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commended as a day of deliverance, by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. And it ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward and forevermore. And so that's what we do as we celebrate the freedom we have in this great nation. I want us to reflect on the freedom we have in Christ, remembering Freedom isn't free. I'll explain that more, but freedom isn't free. Of course, that idiom is an expression of gratitude primarily used for members of the military. So if you're a man or woman who is serving or who has served, today we express a heartfelt thank you because we know we could not be sitting here without your presence. President Modi from India is visiting the states right now. And rightly, he is being reminded that 
in his nation like never before in modern recorded history, our Christian brothers and sisters, some of my own dear friends, are being persecuted, beaten within an inch of their lives, some even killed, many losing homes and businesses. Because he is a radical Hindu, what's happening is in the last, since 16 I think it was, because I was there when he was elected, for the last seven, eight years or so, the radical sect of Hindus have suppressed Christian freedom. And even some of the partners we have, some of the partners we at Grace Baptist Church support are being radically persecuted this very day because they really aren't living in a land of freedom. And so I don't want us to take for granted the fact that we had to battle a little bit of rain, some storms, and some traffic to get in here. But you were not worried about being beaten within an inch of your life. You were not concerned about somebody coming after you today. And because what has happened here is we have separated and made a land of religious freedom. Now, that can be attacked and that can be eroded if we don't continue to protect our freedoms. But when we say freedom isn't free, we are conveying gratitude and respect to those who have given of themselves to defend and protect our freedom. That phrase, freedom is not free, is actually engraved into the wall at the Korean War Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. But I want you to be very careful when you hear this phrase, freedom isn't free, because it can bleed into cynicism and an almost Western concept, an Americanized concept of, oh, okay, then we must do something. We must do something to earn our freedom. Listen, we had to do something for this land, but you absolutely cannot do anything to earn your freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a major, a massive difference because we're very cynical, right? We say, well, you don't get something for nothing. Nothing's really free. Yes, that's true. However, we need to make a clean separation between freedom in our land and freedom in Christ. With that in mind, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. I want you to think about what we're going to read here in Galatians. It has, this has a lot to do with freedom. This whole epistle, this whole letter has a lot to do with our freedom in Christ. It has, it, it's sort of a, a balanced book that says we want to avoid this extreme. I'll tell, tell you what that is in a moment. And then we also want to avoid this extreme over here, and we want to live in this middle area called liberty. We're going to avoid legalism. We're going to avoid license. But we're going to live in this middle ground called liberty. Let's read it, Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, now we were just talking about that a few weeks ago. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. It's because there were a group of people called Judaizers that said, look, if you want to become a Christian, the first thing you have to do is become a Jew. Get circumcised. And once you become Jewish-like, then you can come to Christ. And Paul says, no, bub, that's not the way it works. You can go straight to Jesus. You don't have to go through any earthly system, any rite, any ritual. You can go straight to Jesus. 
And so he says in four, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now that's what Jesus would also teach. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who, were, who, who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, it's always a joy to be back with our Grace family. As one of my prayer partners said today, who's been working in another state for some time, there really is no place like home. And we're grateful for this family of faith. We're grateful for this place that you have provided for the church to gather. We're grateful for every person who works so faithfully in front and many, many more behind the scenes to see that we can gather freely, joyfully, worshipfully. And Lord, I pray today that we would have open hearts and minds to receive all that you have for us. And even in these days, as we celebrate independence, as we celebrate the land in which we live, which I still believe is the greatest land on this planet, God, please, please forgive our sin. Heal our land. Restore us. Awaken us. Revive us again. Rend the heavens and come down we here at Grace are ready to receive and continue to be beneficiaries of your blessings. But Lord, we are blessed to be a blessing, to pour out the generosity that you have poured upon us to our neighbors and the nations. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here and around the world through the influence of the Grace family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you and be seated. So, we're going to navigate some things today, and fundamentally, I'm going to tell you how Christianity differs from every other major world faith, including Hinduism, as I mentioned, um, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, whether it's an American cult or whether it is a worldwide religion, Christianity differs primarily because of the things being taught right here. What is the first thing? One extreme we should avoid. God wants us to avoid legalism. Legalism. How many of you by show of hands have heard the word legalism before? Should be about everybody in the room. Okay, so do most of you understand that concept of legalism? I think you probably have a pretty good idea. Yes, yes, yeah. I can see y'all, you know. I need some form of communication back. I will not berate you like my dear brother Mike, but I will ask for some form of communication. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much. All right, so legalism really at its core minimizes the significance and sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. So let me give you a definition if I may. What is it? 
strict or excessive conformity to the letter of the law rather than its spirit. Now, I'm not saying the letter of the law doesn't matter, but strict conformity, so you're kind of straining out a gnat to swallow a camel. It is often a literal adherence to the law or a particular code of religion or morality. Let me give you some ideas. As I'm studying for this, I come across a further explanation of legalism and some of its manifestations. Number one, it is a reliance on one's own performance to merit favor before God rather than relying on Christ's sacrifice or Calvary on our behalf. Number two, it is relating to God on the basis of works rather than on the basis of faith. That's an extension of the former. That's why I would argue that Christianity says done, it is finished, paid in full. Every other faith says do. In some form or fashion, every other faith says do. The fact that you're here together to worship is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. But you coming into this place today in no way, shape, or form has added one tiny fraction to your salvation. If you are my brother or if you are my sister in Christ, it is because Jesus saved you by his sacrifice, just like Jesus saved me by his sacrifice. Through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, I have been born again. I'm not who I once was. I'm not yet who I'm going to be, but I am on the journey to the Lord. And just like that beautiful praise course that I think Pastor Jeff wrote, Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, woman, boy, or girl comes to the Father except by him. Not by being Baptist, not by being American, not by being black or white or brown or yellow, but by being born in the Spirit, trusting the finished work of Christ, the Spirit living in us, it is not based on what we do. Does that make sense? All right, so if you're on a boat, you'd be beeping your horn right there. Okay, beep, beep. All right. So legalism may also be confused. Now, this is a big one, y'all. All right, Baptists. Now, listen to me, Baptist. Confusing personal convictions or preferences with biblical mandates or ascribing equal authority to both. You might as well go back and be a Roman Catholic if you're going to make tradition and Scripture of equal weight. Am I right, Chirito? Thank you. If you want to get happy and do a little jig right there, it's fine with me. I'm Baptocostal. Let her up. Let her go. Don't you dare put your tradition and Scripture on the same plane. The Word of God is the foundation upon which all belief and behavior is built. Did y'all hear that? That was good. Now I didn't even have that written down. I don't know if I can say it again. The Word of God is the foundation upon which all belief and behavior is built. I did say it again. That's good. Do not think your preferences equate to Scripture. And then, of course, number four, which is why many times we get called out as hypocrites, another form of legalism is enforcing extra-biblical, extra, outside of the Bible, more than the Bible, enforcing extra-biblical moral standards on others. 
That is an extension of the previous point. I love what Jack Deere said. Jack Deere wrote a book called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but I agree with this. He said this, The essence of legalism is trusting in religious activity rather than trusting in God. It's putting our confidence in a practice rather than loving, rather than a person. And without fail, this will lead us to love the practice more than the person. I think some folks are more in love with Christian practice than the Christ of Christianity. That's what I think. I think some people are more in love with the practice. You know how I know? Because I know they walk out of their churches in their fancy clothes and they go to the restaurant and they treat the waiter or waitress like an absolute dog. Hello? Right? Because every one of y'all that's ever served in a restaurant on a Sunday knows that's your least favorite day of the week. Bunch of stingy tightwads that are ugly, rude, and impatient. Oh no, the Christians are coming. And it should be right opposite, should it not? Oh, what a wonderful day. These are sweet, patient, generous people coming to see us. How many wait staff have ever said that? Because here's the deal, guys. We think that we've got it figured out, and by our practice, we love the practice, we enjoy the practice. Let's sing the songs, let's open the word, let's say, hi, brother, hello, brother, how are you, sweet sister? I'm fine, honey. I mean, we do all of the Christianese, and then we go out and act like the devil. There was a pastor who discovered one Sunday morning that the roads to get to his little country church were blocked, and the only way he could get there was to put on his ice skates and skate across the river. Well, when he finally arrived at church, the deacons of the church were horrified that their preacher would skate on the Lord's Day. After service, they had a meeting, and the pastor explained it was either I'm going to skate across the river or I wasn't going to get here at all. And finally, one deacon said, well, young man, did you enjoy it? And he thought about it, and he said, well, no, sir, I didn't. He said, well, I guess it's all right then. We, we put all of these restraints and these hoops in front of people. And though the word legalism itself doesn't occur in the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments have the concept and encourage us at every turn to avoid it. So listen to this, Deuteronomy 12, 32. The Lord said, whatever I command of you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor shall you take away from it. Mark 7, 6 to 8, Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, Well did Isaiah say to you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, washing of pitchers and cups and many other things that you do. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle, that would be like a comma and a period, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law until it is fulfilled. Now I want you to look back at our text for a moment in verse 2. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now look, guys, Paul's not opposed to circumcision itself. He was certainly circumcised as a Jewish man who then came to Christ. But he rightly rejected the notion that circumcision was prerequisite or a necessary component of salvation. He said, Christ will profit you nothing if you think you have to become like a Jew first before you can come to Jesus. 
the atoning sacrifice of Christ will not benefit those who trust law and ceremony for salvation. You would thereby be a debtor, verse 3, to keep the whole law. See, God's standard is perfect righteousness. So a failure to keep any single point of the law means you fail at it all. This is what James teaches. You really should memorize James 2.10, guys. If you don't know it, memorize it. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point is guilty of it all. So you say, man, I kept nine of the Ten Commandments. The verdict? Guilty. I, I kept, there are six, like 613 of the Judaic commandments that they added to Scripture. I kept 612. I just couldn't get the 613. Guilty. You are guilty of it all. Now, don't misunderstand verse 4. Look at this. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Now listen, guys. That doesn't mean you lose salvation. I've taught this in the book of Hebrews. But rather what it's saying is grace has no real value in your life if you are adding to salvation. You are saved by grace through faith that not of yourselves, not of works, right? It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he says this, you've become estranged, katergeo. It's a preposition that means to be separated or loosed from. And you've fallen from grace, Ekpipto, it means to lose your grasp on something. You are, you, you, you've, lost, you've lost your grasp on salvation. You can't hold on any longer. It was like tubing with the kids the other day. I have a great video of Heather. I thought about showing it this morning. I decided I'll hold it till later just to make her nervous. But I mean, I flipped her backwards completely off the uh, float one time. It hit the water so hard, and it was hysterical. Once we realized her neck wasn't broken, it was hysterical. It was incredibly funny. And so I've been showing it to everybody the last few days. I'll show you if you want to come up and see it. But it was great. But I thought about this word. I don't talk about this stuff out with them, but I'm thinking ahead the message. I think, yep, she just did that. She just lost her grasp, and she went down. Well, that's what he says here. He says, if you hold on to your man-made systems, if you hold on to your tradition, you cannot hold on to Christ. You will lose your grasp. So he's not just dealing with the idea of security of the believer because once we're justified, we're set, we're sealed. The Bible teaches us in Romans 8.30, whom God predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, who he justified, he glorified. You're not going to lose your salvation. But what it's saying is if you think you can be saved another way, it's not going to be done. Can't be done. I like Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, one of my favorite stories comes from a man who used to be in our church. When he was a youth worker many years ago in an ethnic community, he attended a church that had Scandinavian roots. And being a creative young man, he decided he'd show the group a missionary film, a movie. And he said, we're talking a simple, safe, black and white, religious-oriented movie. The film projector had not been off for an hour when a group of leaders in the church called him and said, what have you done? Have you shown our young people a film? And he said, well, yeah, yeah, I showed them a movie about, you know, missionaries and their roots in Scandinavia. They said, well, we don't like that. And he said, well, I don't mean to be argumentative. But he said, it wasn't that long ago we had a visiting missionary in, and he showed slides. And so the group started talking among themselves. And finally, one guy spoke up, and he said, look, young man, if it's still, it's fine. 
But if it moves, it's sin. <laughs> and, and some of you guys, let's be honest, some of y'all have been in churches that have taught similar things. This is a moving picture. This is something on the screen. <gasps> I remember. I remember the battle in our first church 20 years ago over buying the first projector the church would ever have. Before we had any of the new worship centers, do you remember this? I was teaching on overhead projector sales. I would write, and I'm a lefty, so can you imagine me using a left hand to write on these cells? So I'm writing and erasing what I'm writing, trying to teach the people. I said, can we please? The money was coming in. God was being gracious. We would soon tear the facility down and upgrade all of the buildings. I said, can we please get a projector? I remember somebody telling me, well, pastor, what if something awful pops up on the screen? You just automatically think some bad image is going to pop up? You think that's how this works? If so, the dude in the boots getting fired immediately. But no, I mean, we didn't have any staff that back then. I was controlling it all. What do you think is going to pop up on my computer? And so I, I think the reality is we have made all of these hoops and rules and regulations. But God wants us to avoid legalism. And we'll continue to look at this in the closing verses, but let's go to this next one. God wants us to embrace liberty in Christ. Embrace liberty. Let's says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. And you all know this. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. You know that. And so I've said variant forms of this many times. Please write it down again to remember it. It is not faith or works. It is not even faith and works. Biblical Christianity is simply this. Faith works. When you are truly born again, when you are a child of God, when you are saved, God begins a transformative work from the inside out. No, of course it doesn't mean you're perfect. Of course you're going to stumble and fall. And in many ways, you're still going to need to continue learning and growing. And sometimes you'll take two steps forward and maybe even three back. But you're on a journey and you are convicted knowing when you are off the path. Biblical faith works. In contrast to the commands of Christ to love God and love others. He said it could all be summed up with that, love God and love others. The Pharisees developed a system of 613 laws, 365 negative commands, 248 positive commands. And by the time of Christ, it produced a cold, heartless, arrogant brand of righteousness. That's why when you really study the Gospels carefully, Jesus wasn't opposed to the prostitute and the drunk. He wanted them to be saved. They were sick and needed a physician. He would go to them. But who did he oppose at every turn? The religious elitist. The ones that had their spiritual noses in the air and thought they were better than everybody else. And so there are at least ten tragic flaws in not embracing liberty in Christ. New laws continually have to be invented for new situations. Accountability to God is replaced by accountability to men. Just following the letter of the law reduces a person's ability to really discern things for themselves. 
it creates a judgmental spirit in people. The Pharisees often confuse personal preference with divine law. This produces inconsistencies, creates a false standard of righteousness, becomes a burden not only to the Jews then but to people today, is strictly external and ultimately was rejected by Christ. And what I want you guys to understand is this. I'm not saying go out and live crazy. I'm not even saying throw the law out. Jesus didn't throw the law out. You need to live according to the laws of God. However, living according to the laws of God doesn't make you a child of God. It shows, demonstrates that you're a child of God. You see, in 9 through 12, what is he saying? He's saying this little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, but look, I know that if I preach circumcision, if, I, if I'm preaching to you be like the Jews, then why are the Jews persecuting me? If I'm preaching the right thing, why are they persecuting me? He says, the offense of the cross has ceased. I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Now, this is pretty, pretty vivid here, guys. I'll try to be careful with my words. Paul's points were simple. Apparently, one small deviation from truth could destroy an entire system, meaning this. If you were to say, you must be circumcised to be a Christian, you just destroyed the system of grace. We have some folks that are in Christian denominations today that say you must be baptized in order to be saved. Friends, that is a lie. Baptism happens after salvation as an external sign of what's already transformed internally. You see, if you believe that you must go through those waters to be a Christian, then you just call Jesus Christ a liar. He told that thief on the cross who never got down alive, who never went to church, who never got baptized, verily, verily, amen, amen, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so we are not going to call Jesus a liar. We're not going to say that you have to do this to be saved. If you do that, the whole system of grace crumbles. He was confident that the Galatians would share his views and, and these false teachers would be exposed. And he's talking about the offense of the cross in verse 11. What does that mean? Well, folks, the cross still offends fallen men for the same basic reasons today as it did 2,000 years ago. The offense of the cross is this. Listen to me. You can't save yourself. You don't know me, preacher. I'm a self-made man. Now, when it comes to heaven, you ain't. <laughs> You're not going to get there on your own. You cannot make it by your goodness, your church activity, your money, your sweet spirit, your glorious smile. You either trust Jesus Christ alone and his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, soon second coming, or you trust in yourself, and that will fail every day single time. Whether Jew or Gentile, people are prone to trust in what they can do for themselves. And to preach the cross invites persecution because it is the supreme offense to works-based righteousness. But as Peter boldly proclaimed before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And he says something very potent and very powerful in verse 12. Did you see it? I could wish that those who trouble you 
would even cut themselves off. What in the world? Well, that word does literally mean to cut off. And it has to do particularly in that day with mutilating a part of the body. Now again, let me be careful with my words here. But the word in Paul's day often referred to castration. What Paul is probably doing is referring to the cult of Sibel. It is a popular pagan nature goddess in Asia Minor, in this area around Galatia, during Paul's day. Many devout male worshipers would castrate themselves, become self-made eunuchs, because they thought it pleased the goddess. And what Paul was saying was this. Again, without being too graphic, he said this. Okay, I'm going to reason with you. If you think you must circumcise yourself, which is just a little removal of foreskin, if you think you must circumcise yourselves to be right with God, why don't you be as devout as these cats over here who are doing the whole deal? That makes sense? Is that said enough? I don't want kids asking too many questions at lunch. That'll ruin your lunch talk. The reality is, Paul is saying, if you believe that really makes you right with God, just go ahead and get it over with. Just do the whole thing. And so I think it's very important that what he's saying is, look, if you are insistent on circumcision, then you need to just take it all the way. And that's why this whole concept of works-based righteousness simply doesn't fly. He reminds the, the people, the believers of their freedom in Christ again in 13, you brethren have been called to liberty, but don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. What is he saying? He said, this does not mean anything goes. <laughs> this doesn't mean, oh, I can throw the law out the window. It doesn't mean act like a heathen and go out and do anything. I know it's only through Jesus I'm saved. Therefore, I can do anything I want. That is not what he's teaching. That is not what I would ever teach you. He's saying, look, the law is still there, but it is our schoolmaster, it is our teacher, our tutor that leads us to the throne of God. It leads us to the cross of Christ on our knees. And when he lifts us up, we will want to walk by faith and keep the word of God. Do not use your liberty for sin to gain a foothold. The goal for liberty is not lust, but love. Rather than being in bondage to law or sinful nature, let us love one another well. We didn't read it, but he goes on to say in 14 and 15, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if there's a lot of traffic out in the parking lot when you leave, because there's more people than normal, come back to this verse. I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'll tell you the truth. Driving back up from Valley, Alabama the other day from Lake Harding, I lost a lot of love for my crazy neighbors that clearly never took a driving test. I lost a trem Don't say anything, Cindy. I feel you. I feel you, baby. I love you. I can feel the vibe. I lost a lot of love because these people out here are crazy. They don't know how to drive, and they need Jesus. And if there's two lanes, this is just a public service announcement for your benefit. Like going back to the lake yesterday, if there are two lanes with a dotted line, like two lanes over here, two lanes over here, right? If you are not passing, do not ride in the left lane. I promise you one day, 
I'm going to buy a bumper thing for my truck, a big, gnarly, rusty bumper guard. And I'm going to just start taking people out. And I'm going to pray for them before I whack them off the road. Love your neighbor as yourself. That probably wasn't the best illustration of that. But because of what Christ has done, not what we could ever do, but because of what Christ has done, we have so much to celebrate. As we begin to land this plane, y'all watch this very short video, and then the band will join me, and we will close this out. For over 200 years, the American flag has served as a symbol of freedom, not only here at home, but around the world. Our freedom was bought at a price we can never fully repay, by the sacrifice of men and women from long ago and maintained by the heroes of today. So the red, white, and blue are so much more than just flying colors. They are unconditional love on display. This year, as we celebrate with all the fireworks and pageantry, let us not forget that true freedom should not only ring in our hearts, but also from our lips. Shout the hope we have from every mountaintop and in every valley. Don't keep it to yourself. Whether you choose to spend the day surrounded by family or only gather with a few close friends, stop and take a moment to recognize that every good and perfect gift comes down from heaven above because it's in Him we live and move and have our being. It was because of Jesus' sacrifice over 2,000 years ago that we have a future and a hope. Now that is something worth celebrating. Celebrate big, celebrate loud, celebrate with all you have inside of you. Live life, let freedom ring. Live life, play, pray, jump, love, leap, run, laugh, dance, pray, sing, live life, be free. Now I know right off the bat what some of you old Baptists are thinking. You're like, now I'll do all of that, but I can't be doing no dancing. Just don't move your feet. Just keep your feet still and move your top. You'll be all right. You see, the things that we've been taught and the things that we've made up and the things that we've added to the Word of God are doing the people no favors. We need to get back to the basics. If you are far from God today, He welcomes you with open arms to come home. All you have to do is trust, believe in Him, express faith in Christ. Freedom isn't free. It cost God the life of his only begotten son. I know it is in our nature and particularly 
For us Americans, we try to work for our freedom. We try to fight for our freedom. We need to earn our independence. And that is certainly true for nations. But it holds truth for individuals fighting to be free from sin and Satan. Some of you are still on the battlefield fighting to be free from this addiction or that stronghold in your life. May I encourage you today to raise the white flag of surrender, to cry out before the God who made you in his image, I cannot do this on my own. I must have Jesus. I receive him. I accept him. I know that he died for my sin, for my freedom, and I lay it all down at his feet. And then the God who made you will pick you up and set you on the rock of ages and put you on a path not of independence but dependence upon him because Jesus paid the price. Freedom isn't free. Stand with me this morning as we go to the Lord. Listen, I just want you to be thankful. I want you to be grateful. We do live in a blessed land but a land that is quickly taking her eyes off her creator. We need to pray that America comes back, comes back to God. I'm not saying this has been a perfect Christian nation. She's had many, many flaws and still does. But we need to go before God and humbly ask for his forgiveness. I want to ask if you need to trust Christ today. Pastors, counselors, men and women will be here to receive you. You can always come to the kiosk and we'll have pastors and counselors to see you. If you want to come today and express your appreciation for the freedoms that we enjoy, both in our land and in our hearts, I'd love for you to come. I'd love for you to express that appreciation. I know we have a number of men and women who have served and are serving. I, for one, when I bow to pray will be thanking God for you because you have made things like this possible in this land. And so whatever the call upon your heart right now, the altar will be open. Let's spend a few minutes praying together. Let's thank God for the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.